Who is the King of the North? Hey guys, this is Lee and this is the Honor of Kings podcast. We're back with you for a new series called Who's the King of the North? And the focus of our study is going to be Daniel 11.40 through 12.2. Many people will tell you that uh, this section of prophecy is the hardest in the Bible to interpret and to understand. Um, And there are a lot of moving parts. This overall story is discussed by John and Paul. And then, of course, Daniel, as we're reading here. So there's a lot going on with it, but it really isn't that tough to understand. And once you see it, you see it. But I can promise you that this this particular study is critically important for Christians today. Um, I think a lot of people probably see this one and they just blow by it. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, the king of the north, king of the south. Um, People don't care about that, especially in this modern age where we have prosperity, gospel, and all this, and uh, people don't have time to read Bibles. People just don't, you know, seem to really gravitate towards this stuff. But this is here for a purpose. It's here for us to understand, and it's very important. Um, This will tell us about the world we're living in now and the time we're living in now and our role in this time and place. Um, so it, it's put here It's put here for us. It's put here to, to guide us, to teach us, and to warn us. And so we should all understand what it is. And like I said, it's not that hard to understand. Uh, might seem overwhelming at first, but if you stick with it, you'll see it and it'll all make sense. And I'm going to boil it down. Uh, just I'm not trying to be suspenseful or anything here. I'm going to kind of tell you who things are and then we're going to we're going to have the answer first like in school but we're going to show the work afterwards um, how we get to it okay <clears throat> and so with that let's um, enter into a word of prayer and then we'll get into our study father in the name of jesus we ask that you open our eyes to this today open our hearts that we can receive what you have for us and you've told us that, that Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and you've commanded us to come out of her. And this is what we're trying to do. This is what we wish to do, Father. We want to come out of her. We need to see the truth. We need you to take the scales from our eyes, Father. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. And ingrain deeply in each of us a love for your word, Father, that every day we would hunger for your word and we would seek your word and we would dig into your word so we can see your truth. We can see your character. We can see your love in these pages. We don't need to be told about it all the time. We don't need to read about it from other sources all the time. We need to come straight to you for it sometimes, most of the time, in fact. And so we just ask that you inspire us to be in your word every day and that you give life to this message that we have today, this study that we have today, that your truth is spread out for all to hear father and that you just guide me and that you help me do the best that i can i am not talented when it comes to doing this but i just ask you to strengthen me and be with me father and be with our listeners and help this be life-changing help this create the new man that we're supposed to be in christ father as this enters our ears and into our hearts we just thank you in the mighty and holy name of jesus amen <clears throat> okay So, 
before we get uh, into the to bones of our study, I just have a couple little notes about Daniel for anyone that might be interested. Of course, his name means God is my judge. Um, he was a Hebrew. Likely, he was affluent, and he was taken into Babylonian captivity in 605 B.C. Um, his prophetic office covered exile period um, and into the intertestamental period. The book of Daniel is 12 chapters. The first six are primarily historical accounts that relate to Daniel's experiences inside Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon. Um, then the second six, chapters 7 through 12, are the prophetic books. So now in the, in the first six books, there is prophetic things happening, but they're still mostly considered historical account. And Daniel is not the one receiving the prophecy. The kings are. But once we get to the last six books, the, the prophetic section of this, Daniel's the one receiving the prophecy at this point. So there, there is a change there. Um, so in this study, we're going to examine Daniel 11:40 through 12:2, and to do so, we're going to have to look through Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 11 to gather the required information to make sense of our verse um, in 1140. Now these chapters are written in a repeat and enlarged fashion, and they tell the story collectively. Uh, just as you can't read the full gospel story from just Matthew, you also have to look at Mark, Luke, and John. Um, well, it's the same with Daniel. You can't just read these individual chapters and get an answer out of something. You have to combine them and take all the extra information. And as we'll see, chapter 2 will give us the baseline vision and, and we'll build off of it. 7 will build off of that. 8 will build off of 7. And then, of course, 11 builds off of all of it. So... Um, it's just really important to understand when we're reading that these aren't different visions and, and different in terms of meaning. They're just different in terms of imagery used. But they give us critical extra details every time we go into a new chapter. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start with a historical series of events that start outside the purview of the book of Daniel. But these events... Though they start before Daniel, the book of Daniel starts, they kind of end in Daniel. Um, these events and people involved in what I'm about to tell you, the story I'm about to tell you, are what's called a type. Uh, and they're used historically to inform the reader how to in interpret the anti-type used spiritually. Okay, So we need to understand first type and anti-type, for those that aren't sure. So a type is a person, a people group, place, event, a time, an object, an animal, or anything else used in the Old Testament that prefigures a model or a pattern of something used in prophecy. Um, so an example would be Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. That's a type. The anti-type is Jesus Christ was in the tomb for three days and then resurrected. So it was it was the story of Christ told before Christ was there, right? So Jonah was the type, Jesus was the anti-type. Um, and then an a example of what how this affects us, we're going to go when Jesus is asked to give a sign. And he says, 
Um, a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign, but truly I tell you, no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonas. Um, he didn't say, well, the only sign you're going to get is that I was in the ground for three days and then resurrected. He didn't do that. He used the example, the type. He didn't use the anti-type. Anti so he referenced them back to Jonah. Other examples of this kind of thing, and this is one I use all the time, is Jezebel in Revelation to the church. He says, um, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Well, at the time that John is on Patmos writing Revelation, uh, Jezebel has been long gone. Uh, she's an Old Testament character, but when we see that in Revelation, we see her name, then that tells us we need to go back into the Old Testament. This is speaking of, Revelation is speaking of Jezebel in a spiritual uh, fashion. We need to go to the Old Testament and say, okay, what did Jezebel do? Who was she? What activities did she, go, did she do that will inform us as to how it's being used in Scripture? Or in prophecy, excuse me. Um, and of course, she, Jezebel, is equated with Babylon, and which is false doctrine, apostasy, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, in other words, when Scripture references something that already existed historically and uses it in a prophetic verse, we need to understand the story or nature of that person, place, or thing and use the spirit of it, uh, and to use the spirit of it in the prophetic context. So what is, we have to see what it really did, and then we have to use that spiritually in the prophetic. I hope that makes sense. I feel, I feel like I just blundered that, but I, I hope you guys are with me on that. So verse 1140 through 45 is our antitype. And when we read this prophetic verse, we cannot see this as literal. We have to see this as spiritual, and we must search the scriptures to find the type or historic event that it's modeled after. Um, so we are just going to look at 1140 here and not the entire study. We're just after the king of the north and the king of the south. So Daniel 1140, and scripture says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So here is our anti-type. The king of the south is pushing at the king of the north. That's what we're looking for. And that's going to be the key to all of this. So we have a spiritual king of the north, king of the south in that verse, so we have to look at the type that sets the stage. So here's the story. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he sets out to conquer Jerusalem. On his way, he's attacked by Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt. This battle ends up basically resulting in a draw. But Nebuchadnezzar regathers his forces breaks off of the advance on Jerusalem and pursues Necho II. This time Babylon wins. Then he goes back to Jerusalem, sacks the city, sacks the temple, and takes the people captive. Eventually, in this story, as we will see, Nebuchadnezzar will exalt himself over God. He'll create a golden image 
and that his subjects must kneel down and worship this image or be put to death. Once Nebuchadnezzar is gone, his grandson ultimately is reigning the kingdom, and he will blaspheme God by using the the vessels from the temple um, that were captured during the captivity. He will use that in a party and put alcohol in it and, and Basically, debauchery is going on with these sacred vessels from the temple. And the finger of God will appear and write a warning of his fate on the wall. That evening, as they're all sleeping in a drunken stupor, King Cyrus shows up in the Medo-Persian Empire and takes Babylon. And as he involved in all this, he drains Euphrates River at some point, and allows the captives to go back to Jerusalem. This is all big picture stuff. Don't think that these all these events happen immediately one after another, but it's, it's big picture stuff. So he drains the Euphrates River, and the Lord's people, which Scripture calls the kings of the east, will be able to leave and go back to Jerusalem. The captivity will end, and he will free the captives. So this story that I just told is the type. It's the basis for this study. Um, let's see here. In this type and, and shadow, we actually have three types of kings that will figure into the second coming prophecy. We have a counterfeit king of the north, we have a king of the south, and we have a true king of the north. This might, this might be at the point where you're like, this is getting confusing, but don't give up on this. We have a counterfeit king of the north, a king of the south, and then a true king of the north. Verse 1140 only shows us the two kings so far, and that's the counterfeit king of the north and the king of the south. It is not until we get to verse 12-1 that we see the true king of the north appear into our study today. So don't don't fall apart with the fact that I just said there's three kings there. So we're going to start by kind of taking a look at the counterfeit king of the north, uh, which is Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon is the type. And the anti-type of that would be spiritual Babylon, apostasy, false doctrine. Um, now the first thing that we see about Nebuchadnezzar, or that we're going to look at, um, is that he was chosen to be God's servant. So in Jeremiah 25, 7 through 9, Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord. And he, now the Lord's talking to his people here. Um, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saying the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land. So Nebuchadnezzar has been chosen of God. He's his servant. He is out there to do a job for God. He is representing God in the, now yes, he's pagan, but he's representing God in this uh, particular situation. But in Daniel 2, he will have a dream that will be interpreted by Daniel and in this dream, he will see the image of a man made of different metals. And he will be told that he is the head of gold. 
that he is a king of kings and that all things, the Lord has put all things on earth under his feet, under his dominion, his dominion. He's been chosen, right? Um, this is going to puff Nebuchadnezzar up and he will turn to self-exaltation. He's going to get, you know, a little big in the britches. Eventually he will, in chapter three, create an image of himself from this, this puffing up time. Um, so you got, so remember this for later. He's a servant of the Lord, but he twists the very meaning of what that entails and that demands, and he ends up demanding worship for himself. In essence, he becomes a false apostle. Um, and so this is exactly what our king of the north in uh, 1140 through 45 is. This counterfeit king of the north is also called the little horn power, the man of sin, the son of uh, perdition, the man of lawlessness, or the antichrist. And Babylon is always used as a symbol in prophecy for blatant ap apostasy, false doctrine, and so forth. And, you know, the reason... The reason I'm calling him a false apostle here is that, you know, the son of perdition is used twice. And it's used of Judas and it's used of the Antichrist. Judas was a false apostle. Um, he was a hidden enemy. And Jesus knew who he was, but he, he was a false apostle. He was walking. He was among them. He came up among the other apostles. He was there. But he was a fraud at the same time. He wasn't really with them. And that is the spirit of this little horn power at the end. Um, and this king of the north model. So now to reinforce Nebuchadnezzar as a king of the north, we have Ezekiel 26.7. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north, with horses and chariots and horsemen and companies and much people. So here we have it. Scripture is calling him a, a king from the north. Um, but also look what else it says. When we looked at our model right here for uh, verse 1140, our anti-type model, it says that that king of the north is coming with horses and chariots too, right? See the see how that's equating out? See how those are, are looking like each other? Um, so as far as the king of the south, uh, he'll, he's more established, he's more thoroughly established in the 1260 day prophecy. Um, and actually when we saw in the verse 1140, it says at the time of the end, and I've already talked many times on this podcast, the time of the end is not the end of time. The time of the end is the end of the 1260 prophecy of Daniel. Um, that's when the time of the end occurs. And it is in the story of the time of the end that Egypt is shown to be the king of the south, okay? But for this right here, we just have to look at a map and the king of the south, or I'm sorry, Egypt is south of Babylon. Now, it's not directly south. It's not like one's on top of the other. A piece of the Babylonian Empire curls over and goes, you know, above Egypt. But the actual city of Babylon is to the east of Egypt. 
um, but it's north. If you were to draw a, a north, or excuse me, an east-west line between them, Babylon is on the north side of it, Egypt's on the south side of it. So Egypt is our king of the south here. So Pharaoh Necho II is the type, and then spiritual Egypt is the anti-type. Um, which brings us to the true king of the north. Remember I said there are three. And so the true king of the north, the type is Cyrus, King Cyrus. He is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah 45, 1 through 4, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, uh, to subdue the nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings to open up before him the two-leaved gates and the gates that shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make crooked uh, uh, crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel." For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Well, that's that's pretty awesome, right there. You know, if you're if you're Cyrus and you're hearing that, God is saying that about you. Uh, that that would be pretty awesome. But he is the type and shadow of Jesus Christ, as you know. I think evidence right there in Isaiah forty-five one through four. Um, and so being the type and shadow of Jesus in this storyline here, he comes right after the warning of God goes out. When the finger writes on the wall is when he shows up. Um, so that, that's important to this, this whole story. And, um, he conquers Babylon, the counterfeit king of the north and frees the captives. So the anti-type is the real king of the north is Jesus. So in our story, in our initial story, Cyrus is playing the role of Jesus here for the end time. Um, in our previous studies, we have shown that in the tabernacle system, the table of showbread representing God's word, which can also be called Jesus, uh, was on the north side of the tabernacle. Directly across from, from it was the seven-branch candlestick. And we read in Revelation 4-5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and vo voices, and there were seven lamps of burning, uh, or excuse me, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven lamps of fire are burning before the throne. They're right across from the throne. So we know that in the sanctuary system, the table of showbread is on the north side and the candlesticks directly across on the south side. So for that candlestick to be before the throne, it has it's before the table of showbread. So in Revelation, at least for the purposes of that prophecy, it's saying that the throne is the word of God. Okay? And now... Um, for this scenario, for that uh, table of showbread to be 
the throne of God. This is where, according to Isaiah, Satan wants to put his throne. So we look at Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit also upon the mount of congregation in the sides of the north. So he wants to be in the sides of the north over God's word. He wants to corrupt God's word. He wants to place himself in the position of Jesus. Um, and this is exactly what the little horn power, the counterfeit king of the north will do. But Jesus will return with the shout of the archangel and destroy with the brightness of his coming and the sword of his mouth um, this little horn power. Um, and that's just what's going to happen here in this prophecy. So the takeaways here, the takeaways here, there is a counterfeit king of the north, a false apostle. A system of spiritual apostasy will have power. A spiritual condition called the king of Egypt will come against it in the end time, will come against it and try to defeat it. The counterfeit king of the north will win that battle and assimilate the king of the south into the king of the north. Uh, but then the true king of the north, Jesus, will return and will destroy this apostate power. Um, do, 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 do. So now to understand, or, well now understand, while I reference the King of the North title, there isn't an actual King of the North title. Um, it's a type and an anti-type situation, but the events in Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 11 will show how we can go from Nebuchadnezzar um the counterfeit king of the north type that we have here to the little horn power, the spiritual anti-type king of the north in the end time. So I call it a title because um, I kind of look at it like a title deed for a house or something and how it passes hands. You know, I have it, I sell it to you, you sell it to the next person, and it it passes down through generations or, or what have you. So this is exactly what Daniels 2, 7, 8, and 11 are showing, the passing down of this king of the north title. It's an imaginary title, but it's a placeholder in the scripture that shows us how we go from Nebuchadnezzar to the final Antichrist. It, it shows it right in here and that's what we're going to study um so before i get to that i have another little thing to interject into our study it's not related to this but i did notice that in the first well actually it's more than the first three we're just going to talk about the first three but in the first three chapters of daniel I couldn't help but notice that there is a similarity between the events that transpire there and the events that transpire between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness during the temptation. And so I'm just going to kind of throw those out there. They have nothing to do with King of the North, King of the South right now. It's just since we're talking about Daniel, I'm going to put them in there, okay? So 
Um, in Daniel 1, uh, we find that Daniel is being tested by meat from the king's table. Um, now, this is interesting because in the first temptation of Christ in the wilderness, Satan is tempting Jesus to turn the stone into bread. Um, so, there's immediately, uh, what am I looking for, a similarity. Um, so, both were tempted by food first. Uh, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream and, uh, and the interpretation thereof that he is the head of gold and God is placed all under his feet. And this plays at his pride and develops his attitude of self-exaltation because he was chosen of God. Given him kind of the idea that he can just do anything that he pleases now, that he's the power that's there. Whatever he does, God has already ordained it because, you know, he's so great. God's like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. Well, what happens in the second temptation in the wilderness? Um, Satan misquotes the Psalms and tries to get Jesus to do the very, you know, to go against God's word too. And he says, you know, cast yourself down for it is written that the angels have charge over you that lest ye dash your heel upon a stone. And what does Jesus say? He says it's also written, you know, not to put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus was being obedient to the Father. Satan wanted him to be puffed up with pride and say, hey, I'm, I'm the son of God. I can do whatever I want. You know, God's just going to back it up, right? So there's the similarity of the second one. And we'll just go ahead and I'll just throw the third one out there just to be done with this. But in the third one, in the third chapter, Nebuchadnezzar creates an idol of gold and demands that people worship it. And so when we see the third temptation with Jesus and Satan, Satan takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says they can all be his if he kneels down and worships Satan. So we have this false worship situation happening there. So anyway, there, there are a few other ones. Those are the big three, and I just thought I would share them just for a little fun extra in there. So um, that is all. This is, oh, we're already into 30 minutes on this, and I didn't want this to be too long. So I think we'll, we'll try to get through chapters 2 and 3 real quick and then call this episode an end. Um, we're not going to get terribly involved here. We have the model of what we're trying to understand. Daniel 2 sets up the image that the other chapters are going to build off of. So in uh, Daniel 2.31... Um, thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form there, uh, thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, and its breast and arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, and his legs of iron, his pe uh, feet part of iron and part of clay. Uh, thou sawest until a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon the feet, which were iron and clay, and break them into pieces." Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain which filled the whole earth. Um, okay, so <clears throat> this is in the interest of time. I would encourage anybody uh, for additional study to continue um, 
the rest of Daniel here to see the interpretation. I'm just going to do the Cliff Notes version of this interpretation and kind of, you know, tell you in advance what some of these things mean uh, so we're ready for the next chapter. So the image had a fine gold, that is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Uh, and it goes down to explain this. Uh, the brass and arms and silver are the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the belly and thighs of brass are Greece, and Alexander the Great. And the legs of iron um, are Rome. <clears throat> and his feet part of iron and part of clay. So his he, legs, let's remember, the Roman Empire is split in two. An east and a west empire. But one empire, the pagan empire, will be comprised of ten kingdoms. Uh, and that's really important to understand later, which represents the toes. So, Rome is the Iron Empire. Um, but thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet. This, the stone, is the, the, the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. This is Jesus Christ. This stone that is cut without hands, that smotes the image. It destroys the apostasy. This is Jesus Christ, and this is Jesus Christ's second coming. This is his return. And as it says uh, in verse 35, the iron, the clay, brass, silver, gold were broken into pieces, and they were like the chaff on the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. And the stone that smote the image become a great mountain. And... We, as we discussed in Zechariah with the mountains, a mountain is a great religious or spiritual power. And so Jesus Christ reformed, regathered, remnant church will become a great mountain that fills the whole earth. So here we have the model of succession from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece to Rome. And within that, Within that, with those legs and feet, we have pagan Rome that transitions into Holy Roman Empire. And that's going to be super important uh, distinction that comes up later. But this is how, so far, the title, which is kind of made up, but this title of King of the North passes down from these empires to empires. As we go into the other chapters... Um, especially chapter 8, it's going to start dialing in more specific details of what's going on with this title and where it's going. <clears throat> but for now, we have looked over the image in Daniel 2. It's an image of a man. They call it the metallic empires. You can also look at this whole thing as a composite of the man of sin the Antichrist, the beast system thing. This whole, the attributes of these empires can be looked at as an overview of the man of sin, man of lawlessness. So we have that. We're going to build on that when we go to 7 and 8, but we have to pit stop in verse 3 because this is part of the story as well. Um, it's not part of the King of the North title moving, but it's part of Daniel eleven forty. Through twelve two. <clears throat> so in chapter three, here we see that the idol is made, 
and Daniel and everybody else has to bow down and worship this idol. Um, Daniel 3.1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it in the plain of Dura and in the province of Babylon. And whoso faileth not to worship, oh, excuse me, falleth not to worship, uh, shall be the same hour cast in the midst of the burning furnace. Okay. And now, Daniel 3, 5. That at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, um, psaltery and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Now, sorry for that pause there. Where I have my notes highlighted in green with parentheses, I kind of run everything together, and I want to make sure I had all the, the instruments. So we have an image set up that people must worship at the pain of death, and we have these instruments played as the command to worship. Okay? This is interesting. So let's look at that image again, whose height was three score cubits. So three score is three times 20. That's 60. 60. And the breadth thereof is six cubits. That's 66. So in the measurements, we have 66. When we look at the instruments that must be played, the cornet is one, the flute is two, the harp is three, the sackbut, um, which according to Strong's Hebrew 5443 is a four-stringed harp. We have the psaltery, which is five, and according to the Hebrew 6460 is a triangular harp. And the dulcimer, which is six, Hebrew 5481, it's a drum, flute, or a bagpipe. We have six instruments. 60 cubits, six cubits, six in instruments. We have six, six, six. Okay, we have an image that comes out to, and that comes out to six six six. So Revelation thirteen fifteen, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Revelation thirteen seventeen through eighteen, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it's a number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. So, in Daniel chapter 3, we have the image of the beast and the number of his name. Right there, in our type. This is our type, which is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So that means the image of the beast and the number of his name are associated to the counterfeit king of the north, which are the little horn power, you know, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist. And we are tracking this number, this image, all the way to the end in this study. And so the person or persons or position group that ends up being this little horn power, king of the north, counterfeit, is going to be who this image and who this number are relating to. 
Okay. So anyway, this run nine minutes longer than I wanted to, and I'm sorry, everybody, but I wanted to try to do the best I could to lay a groundwork for this. In the next episode, we will hit chapter seven, eight, and a piece of 11 for the rest of our groundwork. And then the episode after that, we will take on uh, 11.40 through 12.2. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, everybody have a great day. Be blessed. We will see you in the next episode.